careful, um, she'll start singing. <laughs> Jacob! Oh no. Anyway. Um... Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody, welcome to Scattered. We're back after a lovely long summer break and we are starting the book of Luke. We're studying it alongside the UCCS Uncovered series. So we are kind of going through the book, but we are doing like, for example, today's passage is from chapter one and also from chapter four. So it's kind of taking various bits and talking about different themes and also, yeah, trying to study it. Uh, The series of Uncover is helpful, especially for new Christians who are potentially reading this for the first time. But I think it is great for anybody who, again, wants to look at the story of Jesus and what it means for us, uh, what it meant then, what it means for us. And also, yeah, as a way to, you know, maybe after doing this study in your groups, um, it might be possible to then go and read it with somebody um, who's never read it before. So let's get going. So yeah, like I said, it's from the Gospel of Luke. Hi, Juliet and Helen, by the way. (laughs) Hi. Hi. Yeah, so we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 today, and also Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. Um, But before we look at those two chunks, who is Luke and who is he writing to? Luke is a chap who is probably a physician. He knew his Old Testament scriptures well. Uh, He was probably educated. Uh, Greek might have been his first language because he was very good at it. He was also a beloved friend of the Apostle Paul and sticks with him until the end, even when others have abandoned him. Uh, He's not one of the original apostles, followers of Jesus, um, but he does know those who are. So he isn't an eyewitness, right, to the life of Jesus, but he is compiling this account from directly from eyewitnesses. Yeah. It was interesting, I was studying primary and secondary sources with Dora in history today. And so I guess this is a secondary source, but a very reliable one, because he's actually spent time with people who knew Jesus. And where did you get, did you get all of that from some of, from about from Acts? You know, if somebody wanted to go away and be like, who is Luke? Did you read some of that in Acts? He's mentioned in Acts and he's also mentioned in Colossians in some of Paul's letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Colossians, he's mentioned as a fellow labourer and a beloved physician. So. Cool. Great. And who's Theophilus? Because it says in verse three, I've decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Do we know anything about Theophilus apart from that he's very excellent? I don't think he's mentioned elsewhere, um, but from what Luke writes here, it's clear that he's been taught of some things in the past, um, and this is just to solidify and to, um, I guess, have a a clear presentation of uh, the evidence that has been given. Mm. Great. So these four verses at the beginning of Luke, so Luke chapter one, verse one to four, 
how would you put them in your own words or summarize them? Uh, why are they there, basically? Uh, how would I summarize them? Uh, Theo, uh, I'm writing to you uh, after thoroughly and carefully investigating everything about Jesus so that you and others can be assured of the truth and certain of the gospel. Um, and I guess that's both in terms of its facts, like the actual events themselves, and the way that they fit into redemptive history. And then he goes on to say, you know, I did this by speaking to eyewitnesses of everything, including the remaining apostles. Mm. So not just these are the facts, but this is what has been accomplished in terms of redemptive history. And this is how it fits in. It's not just events. It's things that have been planned and executed by God. Yeah. And in, in that he uses the word fulfilled in quite a lot of um, places throughout his account, um, showing that Christ has fulfilled what has been uh, written in the Old Testament. And um, yeah, he's a fulfillment of all of that. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Because it says, I was interested by the fact it says in verse one, uh, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So I'm like, this letter must have been a really good summary of Jesus's life and what he did for it to be one of the ones that made it into our Bible. I mean, I'd love to have read some of the others. Um, I mean, I'm sure obviously we know there are others in our actual Bible and others that aren't, didn't make it in, but still survived. But I bet there were tons that didn't survive this long. Um, so it must have been a particularly good one to be kind of to last in this way and to survive and be so helpful for us. Like it's almost like he's writing this directly to us as well, isn't it? Because for us to know the certainty of the things that we've been taught, like we personally need to come back again and again to the life of Jesus and see it for ourselves. It's also helpful to remember that uh, Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. So this is like part one and then Acts is like part two. Mm. And it's helpful to be reminded that, you know, Jesus, this is what has been fulfilled through Jesus. And Jesus is still at work um, through the Acts and still at work now through us. Mm. Yeah. So what is the story in chapter 4 verses 16 to 30 what happens in this bit Jesus goes into a synagogue as was his habit he is invited to speak and he stands up unrolls a scroll and reads from um, Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 and then and a portion of um, Isaiah chapter 58 verse 6 he then finishes closes the scroll, sits back down again and says, this is me. It's done today in me. I think the other, the fact that um, he's in his own hometown, that's mentioned quite a few times. So people know who he is and knows his family, mm. knows about him. Mm. Quite a claim, isn't it? Verse 21. He began, I mean, I don't think this is his whole sermon. I like the idea that this is his whole sermon, you know, that it's drop the mic moment. Um, but I think this was probably just the beginning of his sermon. But he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I guess no one else in the history of the world could sit down 
open the scripture and say this is about me um what is what claims by saying that what claims is jesus making about himself well this happens after he has been baptized and tested and so um by declaring the um things of isaiah as being fulfilled what he's saying is he's sort of retrospectively interpreting his baptism as the anointing of the jubilee high priest so it was the high priest who declared the day of jubilee and we'll talk about what the day of jubilee is or the year of jubilee and he signals that the fulfillment of the other parts of the jubilee is going to be in the future so he's basically saying i am the high priest that you've been waiting for i am the ultimate high priest and i will ultimately fulfill everything that this prophecy speaks of and Let's remember that he's in the synagogue. Everyone in that synagogue would have absolutely known what he was saying. Mm. There's no like question of what he's saying here. They would have known instantly he was saying, I am this person. I am the high priest that is being spoken about in Isaiah. Because he's not only said that he's um, proclaiming the good news, um, but that he's actually been anointed. So he's the one that will deliver he's the one that will save people and bring liberty yeah so not only is he the prophet as in the one that proclaims the good news but he's also the savior the messiah which is pretty huge isn't it i mean helen you mentioned the year of jubilee what is that and how is that relevant to what he's saying so it first comes up in leviticus i think it's chapter 25 uh, where um, the high priest every sort of 49 or 50 years would declare this year of jubilee. Um, and basically what happened was every 50 years or so, everyone was released from their debts. Property that had been taken was returned. Slaves were released, these kind of things. Um, and it was expected that eventually a sort of super high priest would call an ultimate jubilee like that was the ultimate expectation of the israelite community that um that their country that god's people would be returned from exile and get their land back retrieve their autonomy um they would have restored worship and that um god's god would have a renewed presence with them there, there was this anticipation so the 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 year of jubilee pointed to an ultimate jubilee that had been promised in god's word it's just amazing thought really isn't it that because am i right in thinking that you know it's another kind of you know there's different ways of seeing heaven um and so i guess seeing it as this massive celebration like this jubilee that's coming and jesus is bringing that in like him arriving at this seemingly insignificant synagogue 2,000 plus years ago to preach this sermon. He is heralding that last day when he will bring in this massively exciting jubilee for us. What has just come just before this it, in chapter one was like Mary's song echoing like freedom, good news to the poor in verses 51 to 53. And, you know, this is sort of touching on that, not just for those who are socially socio-economically poor but those who are spiritually poor and those who are um captives not just physically captives but those who are spiritually captive yeah it's a wonderful message to us who have 
been in spiritual poverty and captive to the um that we are set free through Christ and that we have that message you know as freed people we can also proclaim his freedom like it's not we don't actually give the freedom but we can proclaim that there is freedom if you trust in him the freedom giver he gets to the end of this sermon and then what happens uh, in the next verses initially jesus's message is really well received isn't it this is in mm. verse 22 all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth you know this is um great news but then the grumblings begin at the end of verse 22 uh and they said is not this joseph's son mm. you know we we know you you grew up amongst us you're a nobody you've probably made some of my house furniture because you're a carpenter and all of a sudden you're saying you're God's anointed one Mm. who do you think you are and not Mm. only that you know Jesus was somewhat regarded as an illegitimate child Mm. so who are you this illegitimate carpenter to tell me that all my hopes and dreams for my people are fulfilled in you yeah so then Jesus goes on to say like are they going to quote this proverb to him physician heal yourself and then he goes on to describe how different prophets went out to those who are outside of the people of God when they faced rejection in their hometown and so he's mirroring that on what is happening to him now that he's facing rejection from the people of God and he's he's saying so I'm going to go out (laughs) to those who are not because although Jesus offers what they deem to be acceptable and a good thing he himself is being rejected and he then talks about doesn't he these two um things one from one king 17 and then the other from two kings chapter five Mm. um the irony being that of all the widows that elijah was sent to there would have been hundreds of jewish widows that he was sent to he was sent to the non-jew widow Mm. And the second incident with Naaman, who is a foreign leper, he was a Gentile Syrian who was healed by Elisha. So what he's saying is, you have failed as God's people, and and I am from God, and because you have failed me in this instant, you have rejected me, I'm going to go to these people that you deem to be unworthy. Because in actual fact, it's the other way around. You are unworthy. unworthy. Mm. You know, he's telling the crowd that their rejection of him has nothing to do with Jesus, but everything to do with him. Mm. And they get really mad. Their pride is really hit, isn't it? It's when um, Jesus says this to them, because they all along from when they were children probably are being told you are god's people you are a chosen race um and so they feel this kind of pride that they are better than those who are not part of the people of god and so when jesus says that they're like it's easy when your pride is hit to become defensive and so they've just taken that and they get angry as well and um that leads to them wanting to kill him. Mm. Trying to kill him, right? And it seems to be that it's the Gentile involvement, the God's love for Gentiles that really tips them over the edge. 
seem to be really angry at the suggestion that the that the final day of judgment will there will be um gentiles brought into the god's people rather than them all having justice exacted upon them i don't know why but presumably because because they're thinking in terms of earthly terms, you know, they, they're under Roman rule, they've been in exile and all this stuff, and they just want the earthly situation to be sorted, for those earthly promises to be fulfilled. I presume that that's what's behind it. They're not seeing it in terms of a wider redemptive history, um, but it makes them so angry they want to hurl him off a cliff. Yeah, it's quite a turn, isn't it, from Jesus preaching the sermon, everybody speaking well of him, and then boom, they're trying to throw him off a cliff. What do you think, like, so we come to the end of our passage. I mean, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What do you think the purpose of this passage being here is for us? Like, do you think it's relevant to people who are themselves investigating Jesus, which is what Uncover is all about? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think what Helen said was helpful. I think often what gets in the way of investigating is our own pride. Um, we feel like you know, that we've learned so much and do we really need to hear another opinion? Um, or, you know, why didn't I know this before if it's really true? Our own, I think all these things are uh, barriers, but barriers in terms of it's attacking our own pride and our own, um, all that we've ever known, all that um, we've ever learned, and all that we've ever uh, held on to. I think investigating if this is the truth means that um, it requires a level of humility. Yeah, that's really helpful. What else do you think, upon reading this stuff about Jesus, what do you think gets in the way of people kind of investigating further? I think the idea that it's all made up, um, that it's a nice sentiment that makes you, that Christians believe to make themselves feel better. Mm. Um, but I think that's where these passages sort of, or it's particularly the first four verses of chapter one, sort of throw that out. Um, you know, why did Luke write this? To persuade Theophilus that everything he heard about Jesus was true. Why? Um, why did he decide to do this? Because um, it's so serious and has such implications for not only Theophilus, but all people that, that Luke's not content with the evidence. So he, like I said before, he writes this 52 chapter book, which is essentially Luke and the book of Acts. I think there's this idea in the general population today that, that blind faith is necessary. Whereas Jesus himself didn't ask for blind faith. He hung around for 40 days after he raised, was raised from the dead mm. to, to, so that people didn't have to have blind faith. I guess I wanted to just, I think we should be aware of the preconceptions that people have of Jesus before they even come to read this thing. And I think that's evident in this passage, isn't it? Like as soon as Jesus stands up to speak, I mean, they like what he's saying. Uh, for most of his sermons, but they already have a ton of preconceptions about him. Like we said, oh, he's the carpenter's son. Um, he, some people would have thought he was illegitimate. All of this, like this familiarity with Jesus 
definitely shapes their view of what he's saying. Um, I mean, we can't deny, can we? Each of us comes to him with preconceptions, whether we have known him since childhood or whether we are for the first time looking at Luke's gospel now and we've never really considered who he is. We all have heard of him and have preconceptions of who he is. Oh, he's a nice guy. Oh, he healed people. Oh, he's a bigot. Like lots of people have tons of preconceptions about Jesus. And it's kind of almost we need to face those and be aware of those before we read about him. Otherwise, we'll get angry. Actually coming to this story and just taking it at face value is so hard when you've got years and years of, oh, but I think Jesus is this, or I've heard Jesus is that, or the world says Jesus is this. Um, And just stripping those away and taking him for what he, who he says he is, is really important. What kind of preconceptions have you heard of that people have of Jesus? Or did you have before you came to Jesus yourself? So um, I don't know if you listeners know, but I grew up in Asia and um, my mom is Asian. And um, yeah, when we were growing up, um, I was taught that actually Jesus was uh, God for the West and um and I think where we're living now as well that's so tied up that it means people are thinking that actually I'm having to give up my whole um ethnicity I need to give up my whole identity to um and it goes against what um is being taught here whereas here even just in this passage um christ is kind of saying oh jesus is saying that this is not just for uh, the people of israel but the Mm -hmm. for the whole world yeah not just for jews but for gentiles too and i you know i grew up in church you know and i but i didn't become a christian until i was 17 um and so without knowing it i had tons of preconceptions about jesus just from sunday school and um things that i read and things that i thought about him that i had to kind of face and challenge and probably still some of them are deep down in there that i still have when i read about him like i had a huge issue about god being very angry um that I, you know, that he's an angry God. Look at what he does in the Old Testament. Oh yeah, Jesus is kind of nice, but God is this. Like it's easy to come to these stories and not realize that you have all this baggage. Um, And yeah, like just, even just if this week facing some of that baggage and being like, okay, I'm just going to put it down for now and come to this kind of with a clean sheet and see what he really says about himself, I think is would be great if that could happen um yeah like the sorry Helen I was gonna say and I guess that um sort of ties up with what Juliet said earlier which is um when you come to investigate you need to come with humility Mm. recognizing that actually you might be wrong Mm. um and that mm, I would say in general, if God, if you're investigating and there's a possibility that God is real and that the Bible contains the truth, um, then 
the possibility when you have struggles and you get annoyed and angry and get into arguments um, or dis intensely dislike the Bible, the likelihood is that the problem, if the Bible is the truth, recognizing that the problem is you and not the Bible. For me, that was a big game changer um, because I guess I came to it with preconceptions about how Jesus or what the Bible said about women and uh, their role in society and things like that. Um, I am one of, I have one sister and in my family, I was very much taught, you know, there is, um, I was brought up by baby boomers. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there's this fight for women's rights that I sort of grew up in the background of that very, like you have to fight for everything. And um, if somebody, if you're not able to do what you want, then that's because somebody else is imposing these things on you, which I guess is still pretty much the narrative today. And so for me, seeing in the Bible that actually Jesus released women from a lot of the binds that society and our world places on them was a huge thing for me but it took a quite the wrestle for me to wrestle with okay the things that I have problems with that the bible says about women and their roles why is that a problem to me mm. it's a problem to me because it means that I need to change the way I'm doing something and the way I think about something and mm -hmm. um, because I believe that the bible was the truth you know if there's a possibility that it's the truth you've got to let it change you yeah that's helpful um the familiarity that people have with jesus like as i'm talking as christians now i guess um how is that a danger to us um it was a danger to these people because i think you know it put up a huge boundary i mean jesus's brothers throughout his ministry were kind of you know like almost against him weren't they and it wasn't until after i guess after his death maybe and resurrection that they came around but yeah this familiarity in the passage that then drives them to you know pride and anger how is that a danger to us would you say yeah i think um it's a danger when we think we're doing okay when we're taking all the right boxes, doing and saying and yeah, living the right way, but actually forget that we're always in constant need of a savior. And we're always in need of realizing that, um, that we need to come with humility before Jesus. And um, I guess, I think, most people's dangers is or my danger is I want to have my control and um independence and um and actually but actually we need to surrender to his way and uh, to his freedom that he gives us um rather than wanting to um tickle the right boxes in our own power <laughs> yeah I feel like uh, the longer I don't read the Gospels and the longer I don't come face to face with Jesus, the more kind of familiar I feel with him. I know that sounds silly, really. But, you know, like when you're not spending time with him in that way, um, I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong to read the rest of the Bible or whatever, but I mean, 
you it's so easy to form an idea of who he is in your head isn't it and to kind of move slowly away in your walk from actually who he said he is and what he came to do and stuff so I like I just think I've said this already but it's so worthwhile going through this book of Luke because for us to again be faced up to the reality of who Jesus is and what he claimed about himself and what he claimed he would be is everything for us isn't it it's really what everything else stems from um and so that danger for me of becoming familiar with kind of the idea of who I think he is will be hopefully gradually stripped away again as we go through also the the issue with familiarity especially I guess in some ways for non-believers but also believers is when you're reading passages of the bible that seem really familiar you're like oh well god's word has nothing more to teach me here we might not recognize it, but that's essentially the, the thought process. Oh, I know this already. There's nothing new for me here. I've dealt with this issue. Um, whereas actually it's the, almost with those passages that are more familiar to us. I'm thinking about things like the Christmas story, Temptations of Jesus, the story of Joseph, which I wanted to call Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. <laughs> Don't be careful, um, she'll start singing. <laughs> Jacob! Oh no. Anyway, um, yeah, just to put this into sort of other terms, when when I was thinking about this question, I now live in a country in which malaria is endemic. It is absolutely everywhere. I cannot tell you the number of people here uh, expats here who have a very laissez-faire attitude to malaria because they know it it's familiar it's mm-hmm. around people get it it's whatever but actually the reality is that malaria kills, and so it is genuinely better not to get malaria you might be aware of it you and it might be a really familiar disease and everyone might get it but every time you get it you might die it doesn't you know and so there's this concept of it having less of an impact um, less of an awareness of the severity and the seriousness of malaria and that's kind of how I was thinking about the familiarity of the bible it's there we're so used to it it's just part of the fabric of life and yet actually the message of every single part of the bible is so serious and so filled with I guess seriousness but also joy like the message that is in every part of the Bible. And then, and when we become familiar with it, we're almost, it's almost like you lose your joy in it. You lose your joy because you don't see the significance of what's being said anymore. It just becomes just another thing. Yeah, I was reflecting on this because I don't want, you know, I mean, our St. Clement's Church family and other people who listen to this podcast, I don't want us to come to this like book of Luke and be like oh it's Luke I know Luke oh I'm glad for the new people who are reading this because they can be challenged by it like I want all of us to be yeah with fresh eyes be challenged by this book and see new things in God's word and I have this experience I said I studied through Mark really gradually with somebody where we when we were living in the place we were before um, and doing it slowly in chunks each week was just so good for my soul. It was like the first time she was reading it. But for me, it was like, oh, I've never seen that. So I really hope for us 
we can push aside our preconceptions. Uh, we can push aside our familiarity and just come face to face again with the living Jesus and his claims about who he is and his claims on us. And therefore, so yeah, really looking forward to the rest of this. Thank you for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.